Good morning, everybody. Let's all find a seat and we'll get started. Um, we are continuing our study of God's communicable attributes. So we've looked at God's communicable attributes of love, goodness, and mercy. Then we looked at holiness, righteousness, and justice. Then last week we looked at jealousy and wrath with a little bit of hell thrown in. And today our attribute is on missions. And let me just preface this lesson by saying this is not a teaching on polemics. Does everybody know what polemics is? That's strategy on how you attack your opponent. Okay, we're, we're going to be talking a lot this morning about people who believe differently than we do. And you may think I'm giving you something to bonk them on the head with. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to understand why we believe what we believe, why they believe what they believe, and there may be a lot of questions, and if you could just hold your questions until I say now. So that being the case, let's start open with prayer. Our Father, as we continue our study of what you are and who you are, we would ask that you allow us to grasp your awesomeness and your love for us, that we would trust you more and worship you better as the God who knows all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So, how smart is God? How big, if I may anthropomorphize, is his brain, as it were? You notice I put that as it were. I wish the Bible always said as it were whenever they used, so we would know, oh, that's definitely an anthropomorphization. But how big is his brain? How many thoughts can God hold at one time? How large is God's big picture? I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 147.5, which says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So the phrase beyond measure in Hebrew literally means there is no numbering, meaning beyond count. So the psalmist is saying, don't even try to measure. You could never count up everything that God knows. This is omniscience. This is number one on your handout. Omniscience is the divine attribute of being infinitely and perfectly all-knowing. God knows all things, including our thoughts and motives. Our thoughts and motives. The word comes from the Latin omni, meaning all, and scientia, meaning knowledge indicating the all-encompassing nature of God's knowledge. It means that God knows all things actual and potential, past, present, and future. And my first exposure to the concept of omniscience may have been like yours. It was linked to my childhood understanding of Santa Claus. We were told that he was making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. But God's knowledge is the real thing and it is affirmed throughout Scripture, with the simplest expression being 1 John 3.20, which says, God knows everything. His omniscience is, is really, as well as any of the other attributes, are not to be thought of as an abstraction or the plaything of theologians, but it is of divine power and perfection for us to understand who God is. 
A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, and this is number two in your handout, he says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no one thing better than any other. Are we getting an echo back there? Is that okay? A little bit? How do we... Can we turn this one off? I'll let Greg do that. So, God knows no one thing better than any other, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised. He is never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent and self-contained. Which attribute was that? A seity. I want that stuff to start rolling off the tip of your tongues, okay? Self-existent, self-contained. Nothing can impact him from outside, okay? And he knows what no creature can ever know. He knows himself perfectly. So let's talk a little bit about omniscience in relation to the other attributes. Um, and it's important to remember that the differences between each of God's attributes are strictly logical differences from our perspective. And if we learned anything from the attribute of simplicity, it's that all of God's attributes are unified within his one divine essence, the one divine nature that's shared by all three persons of the Trinity, okay? So, since God is eternal, he experiences no succession of moments, which also means he experiences no succession of knowledge. God's knowledge is absolute in the sense that he is forever perfectly aware of all things. God's knowledge is simultaneous, not successive. God holds his knowledge in one act of timeless, eternal intuition. And God is absolutely immutable in his essence and attributes. He can neither increase nor decrease. He's not subject to process development or of self-evolution. Therefore, his knowledge can never be greater or less. And God's omniscience is so closely related to his omnipotence, which is next week's lesson, which means God is all-powerful, his omnipotence. You can hardly separate the two attributes. I've attempted to, so just consider this part one and next week's omnipotence, part two of the same subject. Um, his knowledge is his power, and his power is his knowledge. He knows all things because he created them. His knowledge is causative, not contemplative like ours. When God thinks, worlds come into existence. 
God's knowledge is also linked with his sovereignty, which is a subset of omnipotence, which we're going to talk about next week. He knows each thing both in itself and in relation to all other things, not only because he created it, because he sustains it and now makes it function every moment according to his plan for it. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Louis Burkhoff says, The knowledge of God is that perfection of God whereby he, in a matter all his own, knows himself in all things possible and actual. God has knowledge in himself, okay, a deity, and does not obtain it from without. That's, that's why a deity is so important, okay? It, it's always complete and always present in his mind. And because it's all comprehensive, it's called omniscience. Now, God's omniscience is all over Scripture, but Psalm 139 has all the ingredients to qualify as the locus classicus. That means the principal sorts of, of reference, the locus classicus, for the truth of omniscience. Psalm 139 doesn't speak of God's omniscience generally, but it implies complete omniscience in every area. And I'll read the first six verses for you. This is number three in your handout. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't not attain to it. And here's a passage from the New Testament. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means impossible to understand. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So one of the things we like to do when we're talking about these attributes is we like to say, well, how does this apply to Christ? So, what about Jesus' omniscience as the second person of the Trinity? Didn't he have to divest himself of that attribute in order to be incarnated into a real human body? Wasn't his omniscience suspended when he was placed in a manger? No, no. In regard to Jesus' divine nature, ad intra, and any t this is part of the Trinitarian grammar that I really want you to know too, when someone says something about Jesus, first thing you should say is, do you mean ad intra, inside the Trinity, or ad extra, the external acts of God in, re in relation to creation, okay? So, um, ad intra, Jesus, he was clearly omniscient, but at the same time, in regard to his human nature, ad extra, he was not. This is number four in your handout. The omniscience of Jesus is demonstrated in his knowing people's thoughts, from Mark 2.8. And seeing Nathanael under the fig tree, 
from far away. That's in John 1.48. And knowing from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. That's John 6.64. And John 2.25 says explicitly that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness of man. And in John 16.30 it says, His disciples said to him, Now we know that you know all things. So in these verses we see Jesus' divine nature peeking out. Especially when contrasted to other verses, this is number five in your handout, other verses that indicate that Jesus' knowledge was that of a typical human being. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Or Matthew 24.36, speaking from the vantage of Christ's human knowledge, says that only the Father knows the day and the hour of his return. We see in Scripture that the attributes of both Christ's divine nature and human nature are each manifested throughout his earthly ministry. Christ's mediatorial work involved both natures. So paradoxical as it is, we must affirm that Jesus both knows all things and doesn't know all things. For the unique two-natured person of Christ, this is no contradiction but a peculiar glory of the God-man. God's becoming man and all that entailed is will always be a great mystery beyond our ability to comprehend fully and until we get to heaven, I think. So, does God know the future? This is number six on your handout. A related term that can be used as a synonym for omniscience is foreknowledge. I've got it on the board here for you. Foreknowledge. The timeless God graciously chooses to act in time on our behalf and even at times to announce future events in advance. And the most obvious reading of the Bible's many prophecies is that God knew the future while it was still in the future and made it known through his prophets. And any attempt to deny that God knows every detail of the future has vast stretches of biblical data to overcome. We see this in Isaiah 46, 9-10, where it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. Or Isaiah 42, 8-9, which says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So, objections to God's sovereign knowledge of the future, and by the way, there are plenty of objections. That's why I'm teaching this lesson. All revolve around an old concern, the desire to establish human free will and human responsibility securely, okay? And this issue is going to be discussed today in relation to God's knowledge and next week in relation to, to God's power, his omnipotence. And like I said earlier, omniscience and omnipotence are two peas in the same pod. God's knowledge is directly tied to his power. 
So Calvinists, the Reformed, that's us, that's who we are, have long known that God's sovereign knowledge of the future raises questions about how we can be held morally responsible for our actions. And many philosophers and theologians have thought incorrectly that unless we are the absolute masters of our fate, we can't be held morally responsible for what we do. And many have wondered how, if God knows everything we'll do in the future, how can we be said to have free will? If we freely chose to do something other than what God foreknew, God would be wrong in what he foreknew. But since God cannot be mistaken, we must all do that which he foreknew we would do. And some would say, doesn't this reduce us to mere actors? Playing out the parts written for us by God? Are we puppets who have no control over our actions? Well, that's what we want to find out. And, and by the way, to deny either of those claims, that God is omniscient or that human beings have free will amounts to heresy. God is omniscient. And the Bible does tell us human beings have free will. Well, let's look at it. And this is number seven on your handout. God is omniscient and his knowledge is timeless. That is, God knows timelessly all that has happened is happening and will happen. Therefore, if he knows timelessly that a person will perform a peculiar action, then it is impossible for that person not to perform that action. God does not look. He does not look into the future per se because all of history, past, present, and future, happens for God in the eternal now. He doesn't need to put in a cosmic tape of Mark's breakfast May 17th, 2021, to see what I'm going to eat for breakfast tomorrow because he is there right now. And you should meditate on that. God knows what I'm having for breakfast tomorrow because he's there now, okay? But arguing for God's timelessness, which is a proper thing to argue, does nothing to help to secure that concept of free will. God knows directly that is, without sensory data, he doesn't have to look. He knows directly all that has happened is happening and will happen. So we're going to start with a few definitions before we proceed in, in this discussion of free will. It will be found in two ways, a wrong way and a right way. Let's start with the wrong way. First, as Arminians define it, and if you're not familiar with them, this view is usually referred to as Arminian after the 16th century Dutch pastor Jacob Arminius who formed the doctrine toward the end of the Reformation area. Um, and this is number eight on your handout. When Arminians talk about free will, they would say incorrectly that we have a libertarian, a libertarian free will, which simply means that we have the power of contrary choice. And I know that's kind of an obscure concept and hopefully I can define it for you. In other words, a person has acted freely only if given precisely the same circumstances one could have chosen differently than they actually chose before. Or to put it another way, our choices don't have to be according to our desires and are totally free 
from any influence from God. The libertarian free will view states that human decisions and actions are strictly uncaused, that our decisions and actions are not caused by our desires or character. And because Arminians insist on complete autonomy from God's foreknowledge and decree, it is called the libertarian view because man's choices have liberty from influence by God. So God has nothing to say. He looks. He can see what you're going to do, but he has no control. That's the libertarian free will. Libertarian free will is when a person is equally able to make choices between options independent of pressures or constraints from external causes, like God, or internal causes, like having a sinful nature. Libertarian free will says those don't matter. They are very insistent on this. A truly free act for them is not an act which carries out our strongest desire it rather should be able to go against our strongest desire or our nature. Let me give you an example. Arminians would argue wrongly that libertarian free will is consistent with divine foreknowledge. They would say that for my breakfast tomorrow uh, that I have libertarian free will to choose waffles or lucky charms. But because I have the power of contrary choose I may choose the waffles or I may choose the lucky charms and it doesn't matter if I hit one or the other. I should be able to have libertarian free will choice, okay? And they would say that the outcome of my choice is not fixed or influenced by God's foreknowledge. It's up to my free will to decide. Nevertheless, they say, God who knows all things for certain knows that I will choose the waffles tomorrow morning. So by this understanding, we're led to believe that divine omniscience, or foreknowledge in this case, is wholly compatible with libertarian free will. They say that God's knowing what I choose is simply a knowledge based on foreseen optical evidence. Okay? He looked into the future. And this knowledge in no way determines my choice of waffles. God simply looked into the future and saw what my choice would be. This is number nine on your handout. Uh, So basically, Arminians hold to two contradictory propositions. God is omniscient, and the future is contingent. I spelled it for you right there. The future is contingent, which means subject to chance. They often state that all men have free choice and can be saved and come to faith in Jesus Christ, and God has nothing to do with it. They say that while it is true the future is fixed because God perfectly knows all that will happen and cannot be mistaken, this does not mean that God fixes the future. So so since they can see no way to preserve moral responsibility without libertarian freedom, they have found it necessary to lower their expectations of God's knowledge, knowledge and omniscience. Now, this is number 10 on your handout. However, the Reformed, the Calvinists, which is who we are as a church, believe that human responsibility and God's knowledge of the future outcome are clearly compatible in the Bible. Compatible. 
And this is the second and correct way to understand free will. Compatibilist free will or compatibilism holds that a person can choose only that which is consistent with his nature. Therefore, for example, a person who is a slave to sin, as we see in Romans 6, 14 to 20, and cannot understand spiritual things, as we see in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, would not be able to choose God of his own free will because his free will doesn't have the capacity to contradict his nature. So compatibilism is the belief that God's predetermination and knowledge of the future are compatible with voluntary choice and human freedom. So again, this concept, this reformed concept is called compatibilism, which means that free will and God's sovereignty, his determinism, the view that all events in creation are caused by God are compatible. This is number 11 on your handout. The reformed, the reformed view of compatibilism maintains simply that in making our moral decisions, we're free to do what we want to do, to follow our own desires, and are responsible for all our decisions. As such, compatibilism is the precise opposite of libertarianism, which holds that freedom requires independence from God and desire itself. <coughs> Reformed theology recognizes that all people have freedom in the compatibilist sense. Adam, before the fall, acted according to his desires, which then were godly. And after the fall, sinners still act according to their desires, but those desires are sinful. The redeemed, those who are saved by Jesus, are enabled by God's grace and progressively to desire things which are of God, and they're free to act according to those desires. And the glorified saints in heaven will have only pure desires, and they will act in accordance with those. And my friend Woody Woods will sin no more. Long story there. You can ask me if you're curious about it. He used to be an elder here. So, in the compatibilist view, if an omniscient God has foreknowledge as to my choice of waffles, then this knowledge must be of an event that is fixed and necessary. If God's knowledge is infallible and certain, then what he knows of the future will certainly and infallibly come to pass. If God has sovereignly decreed that tomorrow morning I will choose waffles, then if I were to ask you, what will I choose? The waffles or the lucky charms? All of you would say with certainty, you will choose the waffles. My choice cannot be otherwise. If it could be otherwise, then the possibility exists that God, in his foreknowledge, is mistaken. This is number 12 in your handout. But since God's foreknowledge is infallible, what he knows will certainly come to pass. So when I open the cupboard tomorrow morning, although the choice may seem, may seem very free to me, in reality, my choice cannot be other than waffles. It is a fixed and necessary consequence that I will eat waffles and not lucky charms. I can possess no libertarian free will with the power of contrary choice where God has a sure and certain knowledge of the future. And this is number 13 on your handout. 
It isn't necessary to abandon God's sovereign knowledge of the future in order to maintain human responsibility. Theologians use the term concurrence right here. Concurrence to explain the reality that God and human beings both act at the same time so that the Lord's plan is fulfilled and our choices are truly our own. That God's divine activity accompanies the actions of man at every point without robbing anyone of their freedom or their, their responsibility. And a good verse for that. And, and we're going we're gonna to dive deeper into that concept next week, okay? But a good verse for that is Genesis 5.20, which says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And by the way, Tim's last two sermons, in fact, his sermon from two weeks ago, was titled, Who's in Charge? And he brought up this doctrine, okay? How God is sovereignly planning everything, and men are freely determining their fate, and they have responsibility, okay? So the biblical data is so clear on this point that it's hard to see how preserving libertarian human freedom to safeguard human responsibility can provide a sufficient motive for overturning our understanding of God's knowledge of the future. Unfortunately for them, the desire to safeguard human responsibility does not appear to be the only goal, goal in defending the libertarian account. At work is also a desire to understand human freedom in a way consistent with how our freedom seems to us in a way to, to preserve our dignity at God's expense. All, like I said, although we're only talking about the attribute of omniscience today, it is difficult to separate it from God's sovereign power next week when we look at omnipotence. God knows all because he created all and has willed all. The meaning of foreknowledge when used of divine decisions refers to God's foreordaining and appointing everything through his power. So listen, and this is number 14 on your handout. The Bible doesn't teach that libertarian freedom is necessary for responsibility. Consider the most obvious instance of evil in history, the crucifixion of Christ. The Bible's account of that event presupposes that human responsibility and God's determinate act decree are compatible. Three separate times in the first four chapters of Acts, Peter argues that the men of Israel who delivered up Jesus to death were responsible for their action. Then it says in Acts 2.23 that Jesus him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28 says that they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's concurrence. And that's also compatibilism. So let's uh, focus now on God's foreknowledge in regards to salvation. All Christians hold to a doctrine of election. The term election occurs frequently in the New Testament, referring to God's choice and foreknowledge. Did I spell that out for you? I didn't. There it is. God's foreknowledge of some for salvation. Election is a biblical word. 
The notion of God choosing or electing some for salvation and not others is seen throughout the Bible. No serious student of Scripture denies it. Debate occurs, however, over what may be the basis of God's choice. And the term election is consistent with the concept of foreknowledge and predestination that our ultimate destiny is in the hands of God. And this is number 16 on your handout. Arminian theology sees divine foreknowledge as the basis for election. But for them, foreknowledge means that God peers into the future using his cosmic VCR, and he sees who will accept Christ. Then he elects those. Arminian believes that God looks down the corridors of time to see who will believe and then predestines them based on his foreknowledge of that person's exercise of their libertarian and autonomous free will to choose him. And this foreseen faith is what makes election conditional for them. Okay? He chooses who he foresaw. The condition for being elect for an Arminian, God foresaw it. Okay? And here's the fatal flaw and inconsistent logic of that unbiblical presupposition. While they portray foreseen faith as giving great liberty to every man's free choice, this idea turns out to give no real freedom to man at all. Because if God can look into the future and see that person A will come to Christ and that person B will not come to faith in Christ, then those facts are already fixed. They are already determined. Does that make sense? Okay. And this is number 17 on your handout. If God is omniscient in the Reformed sense, the elect are not just foreknown, but foreordained. Okay. We're going to talk a lot about foreordained next week. We would say election is unconditional. There is no condition. For those of you who know the tulip, the five points of Calvinism, unconditional election, that's what we believe. There is no condition that has to be met. And Arminians have a problem with that. They say, Reformed theology concludes the following. Everything is predetermined, so why evangelize? Number two, they, therefore there is no purpose attached to our life. Perhaps we're here for God's entertainment. Number three, they say God allows us to make choices despite already him knowing the outcomes. Number four, they would say God is not testing us because he already knows the outcome. And number five, there is no judgment at the end of, the li at the end of life. Why judge someone if you already know the outcome? Arminianism assumes people have an innate ability to accept Christ and submit to God's law, that our wills have no predisposition either toward evil or righteousness, but remain in a neutral state from birth. And by the way, for anybody who wants to do a deep dive on this, um, we would say Arminians are semi-Pelagians, P-E-L-A-G-I-A-N-S. Pelagius was a man who argued that what God demands, man can do. We don't need, we don't need help from God at all, okay? That we can attain righteousness on our own efforts. That was Pelagius. And Augustine, him and, him and Augustine went back and forth, okay? 
Semiplegians mean um, we just need a little bit of help. They would, they would call it uh, prevenient grace. God throws a little bit of grace out there just to give us a nudge, enough to allow us to make that libertarian free will decision. But anyway, the Bible says that man's will is bound in sin and cannot submit to God without grace intervening. Romans eleven sixteen says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And Romans eight twenty nine says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many. And this is number 18 on your handout. The Arminian view assumes faith precedes election. Faith precedes election. But the Bible says that election precedes faith. Acts 13, 48. And as many has, had, had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So the Arminian view of foreknowledge distorts the biblical meaning of election. Election means chosen of God, not chosen of self. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Okay. Anybody have any questions? Keith, I can see your mind turning back there. Uh, my question is more practical in the sense that, you know, when I was first heard this doctrine, I, I did deep dive and, you know, the, the greatest thing about that deep dive is driving to Romans 11.33. Like, I just can't understand this. And, and that's a great... Um, that's a great usefulness to deep, to deep dive. But when talking to others and trying to convince them, I think I, I probably wasted some time trying to explain logically and come up with analogies that would help. And I think in the end, I just want to drive them to Scripture and say, you know what? That's all I, you can do, Keith. I don't understand. I, I do think there's benefit in showing that their position also has a logical fallacy that you just talked about. Both positions have a logical tension and problem. Well, their, so just their, leave it their, at that and say, has, worship God. Yeah, I, I think their philosophy is, is extremely logical. It's from the way we see it, from our perspective. And, you know, I mean, it's just, I understand. How can they say, God foreordains everything, and yet you're responsible for it, dude. I mean, it's, but that's what the Bible says, okay? Any other questions? Yes. Let's let's get a microphone here. I was making I was using waffles and lucky charms. Not not as I was giving you the basis that they said God looked and saw I was going to have the waffles. But God didn't make me have the waffles. The Reformed view says God saw I was going to have waffles because he's already there. He's already at my breakfast tomorrow morning. God for, and this is one of the hard things about teaching foreknowledge and not teaching omnipotence in the same lesson. God decreed it all. God has a plan for everything. So, uh, 
yeah, maybe Waffles and Lucky Charms wasn't the best. I just thought it was kind of funny. Just <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's why I... Well, God ordained I was going to eat waffles. I don't know how else to put it. True, but that's not that's not No, no, you're right. And that's that's why I shifted gears and went into God's omniscience in regards to salvation. Pam, do you have something? <laughs> I I just told her uh, what if you eat the lucky charms instead? I said you never fool God. <laughs> but but what you're talking about is answered in your next question on total depravity. See, that's the ultimate presupposition yeah. of the Bible. And if that's true, then everything you've said today is true. If that's not true, then we're wrong. Yeah, yeah. But you don't know that the waffles are foreordained until after you eat them. <laughs> And the fact is, I am still responsible for that shameless act of eating waffles. Okay, now, it's extremely important for us to have a clear and scriptural view of the foreknowledge of God. Because erroneous conceptions about it lead inevitably to thoughts most dishonoring to him. This is number 19 on your handout. The idea of libertarian free will not only denies the truth of the total depravity in man, it also has devastating consequences to the nature of God, God's essence. First, it denies God freedom, since under that system, he is captive to the whims and choices of his creatures. This would mean he's not omnipotent, since his creatures have power over him. Okay? It would mean he is not ah-say. And I wrote this on the board. That's the doctrine of aseity. That he is waiting for something from outside of himself so that he can be who he is. Okay? Um, he, he would not be independent in his decrees until he discovers what his creatures are doing. And I hope you can really see how this all ties in together and just totally makes Reformed theology make more sense. It would mean that he is not a God of simplicity since he would rely on parts. And those parts would be men's choices uh, to be who he is. It would mean that saying that his saving love is irrelevant since he would have to wait to be loved before reciprocating. So this Arminian concept of libertarian free will has a lot. I, I, I don't know how they teach the attributes of God. And by the way, I'm not trying to teach you to be hateful. Um, I, you know, I have a loving sister who's very Arminian, and I've just learned to keep my mouth shut about this stuff. She loved Jesus, and that's good enough for me. Okay, let's switch gears. If God already knows, why pray? Several weeks ago, we asked the same question when we looked at God's attribute of immutability. Does God answer prayer? And does prayer change things? Yes. 
Does God change his mind because of those prayers? No. Or were the prayers that were answered always the will of God to begin with? Yes. What a relief that we can pray to the one who perfectly knows everything, including our pain, our fear, and our disappointments. And we can come to only one biblical conclusion if we deem God to be an all-knowing being, that God won't change his mind if he already knows the final outcome. So God graciously uses believers as vessels in participating in carrying out his will through prayer. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Matthew 6, 8 says, He knows our needs before we have them. So some would say, and this is number 20 in your handout, what's the use of praying to a God who already knows our needs? The answer is that we must never presume God will grant us, apart from prayer, what he has ordained, ordained to grant us only by means of prayer. The purpose of prayer is not for God's good, it is for our good. And we have a role model in Jesus who used prayer to let him, his father, know his needs. Uh, so what percentage of, this is not on your handout, used to be, what percentages of Christians or Calvinists? It depends. When they're on their knees praying, it's 100%. It's interesting how Calvinistic people become when they're desperately praying for the salvation of a loved one. In the Ar Arminian, libertarian, free will scheme of things, you would never pray for a person's salvation because that would be praying for God's interference in their free will choice. And the right way, the reformed way to pray for a person's salvation is to ask God that he'll open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to repent and trust Jesus. Yes, we pray for God to interfere because that's the only way we can become Christians. So to conclude, we can know God. Since this is a communicable attribute, we have knowledge and can know God. What does it mean to know God? God is known as he reveals himself in Scripture, not as we find him ourselves. The question is not what should God be like, given our experiences or our philosophical premises, but what has God actually shown himself to be like? Although our Savior is everywhere in Scripture, it's possible to read God's inspired word in a way that ignores Jesus' central role. And that is why Jesus Christ, and not philosophical speculation, must be our guide to God. This is the last one on your handout. Knowing Jesus, you've got to know Jesus first. Here are other things we can know. We can know we have eternal life. We can know all things work for the good of those that love God, who are called according to his purpose. We can know God hears and answers our prayers. We can know our Redeemer lives. We can know that he will raise us from the dead. We can know that he has given us an eternal home. And we know that we will see him and be like him one day. For the believer, omniscience offers security. That God is in control that he knows and understands perfectly, and that if he truly knows all things and ordains all things, then everything that happens to me or to those I love happens as part of his plan. Any questions? Yes? Time.
I only have time for one question. We've got to shut this thing down. On number 19, when talking about the Armenian idea of uh, total depravity, is it a, a, is it a logical conclusion of this to go to open theism, or is there an internal inconsistency? Take your mask off, Andy. I can't understand you. Is there an inconsistency, even within the Arminian position, to go all the way to open theism? If you're arguing that with somebody, why don't you take it all the way to, how does God know anything until it happens? and taking, stripping away the omniscience. I totally get it. You know, and I'm, when I make these statements about Arminians, I'm just saying generally speaking, I'm sure there's lots of shades of gray. But their main concern, and I learned this as an Arminian, and many of you started out as Arminians, but I learned that very thing, that concern for human responsibility. If God has foreordained it, how can I be responsible? So that's why they never teach on predestination. T they have to teach on election, but what is it? It's conditioned on God's foreseeing their faith. So, yeah, I understand the concern there, Andy. It's, it's uh, you know, and like I said in last week's lesson, they think their faith is their justification. They don't believe that Christ's righteous righteousness is imputed to them. They believe that their faith and as Tim pointed out when we brought that concept up, that's works. So hopefully I've answered questions. Feel free to talk to me after the service if you want to. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you know all, that you will all, and that you graciously ordain all things that come to pass, Lord. We, we ask that you would give us a sense of humility knowing that you have chosen us and that we are your people, Lord. We pray that um, we would meditate on that and just marvel in your omniscience and just take uh, security in knowing that all things that happen are ordained by you for our good and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.